Psalm 139 has been known as one of the most beautifully poetic and theologically rich psalms in the Psalter. It could be described as both hymn-like and petitionary. The first four sections of the song, rather the, the psalm breaks up into four sections, six verses each. The first three sections form a kind of doxology, praising God for His divine perfections. And the last section is somewhat of a petition to God to judge the wicked, to exercise His vengeance. And interestingly enough, this psalm has been known by some as the Omni-Psalm. For in it all three omnis exist. Omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. And we will explore what these attributes look like, but before we do, perhaps just a brief definition. The prefix omni is a prefix of totality. It speaks of all of something. And so when you take that prefix and conjoin it with a word like science, a word that means knowledge, you get omni, all knowledge, or all knowing. Similarly, with the word like omnipresence, you get all presence, or ever present, everywhere. And lastly, with omnipotence, all potence. Potence is a word that speaks of strength or power. And so we get all power, or all powerful. And you ascribe them to God, and you get a God that is all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. But it is not enough to simply know the definitions of these attributes. A mere analysis of the character of God means nothing if we live, if we fail to live in light of that character. In other words, our apprehension of the divine perfections of God must lead us to total allegiance to Him as the Sovereign Lord. And I use that word apprehension purposefully for the picture it depicts. Apprehension in its earliest uses means to reach out and grasp with the mind. And so our apprehension, our grasping with the mind of the divine perfections of God must lead us to total allegiance to Him as the Sovereign Lord. That is the point that I will attempt to argue this evening. And so following the example of the psalmist, first we will apprehend the omniscient God. That is the first point for this evening. Apprehending the omniscient God. Starting with verse 1, David says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. Using the personal name of God, the one true God, David says that God has searched him. The sense that this word search gives is that of spies investigating a foreign land, perhaps to determine its secrets, or maybe more in modern terms. It is almost as if God has done a deep an extensive background check on David's entire life. The kind of knowledge that God possesses of David is personal. And that is affirmed 
nay, emphasized by the second verb. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is not a general knowledge that God has. The word know here implies an intimate knowledge. God possesses of David both an intimate and personal knowledge. But a point must be made here. David is employing figurative language in terms that we can understand. God doesn't need to search our lives. He doesn't need to investigate our lives to know everything about us. What David is saying is suppose. Suppose that God did do a highly extensive background check investigation of your entire life. That is the knowledge that he possesses. And so David has, in a sense, just summarized the transcendent knowledge of God. But then he begins to get specific. He begins to show us how transcendent, how comprehensive this knowledge really is. And he employs this literary device. It's called a mirism. It's a literary device of opposites. And he uses it to show a sense of completeness. Notice verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows all of our seemingly purposeless, mundane activities. Something as simple as sitting down and standing back up again, God knows about it. And by implication, everything else in between. God knows all our seemingly purposeless activities. But not only that, the second part of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows our pursuits. He knows our internal motives. He knows why we do what we do. And He knows this from afar. A sense of distance gives us a sense of God's transcendence even over time. God knows everything about us before we were even born. So God knows all of our seemingly purposeless activities. He knows our pursuits. And notice, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows our proclivities. He knows our habits. The kind of knowledge that a wife has of her husband's goings and comings. The kind of knowledge that she has of his personal routine. God possesses that knowledge. Truly, God is acquainted with all of our ways. And notice even verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, before the words even begin to form in the mouth, behold, God knows it all together. And then David begins to speak of the experience of this all-knowing God. He says, you hem me in, which is to say God's knowledge surrounds him, it gets him from every angle And then notice this, behind and before, this is what you could call prepositional theology. Behind and before, God knows David's past as well as his future. And he lays his hand upon him. Imagine, consider just for a moment, an insect on the table. And you take a glass cup and you place the cup upon the insect, trapping it. That is the sense of God's 
surrounding knowledge, and it illustrates the point that there is no knowledge that escapes the all-knowing, omniscient God. And David is undone. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And this is wonderful in the truest sense of the word. It fills him with wonder. This knowledge is extraordinary. It is indescribable. It is high. He cannot attain it, which is to say it is beyond his reach. Yet how do we, how do we respond to this all-knowing God? How do we live in light of His omniscience? Simply this, apprehending the omniscient God means that we avoid presumptuous planning. We don't know the outcome of tomorrow. And so we should not pretend that we do. Rather, we ought to rehearse our fleeting nature. We ought to rehearse our ignorance. And we should entrust ourselves to the one who has declared the end from the beginning. Number two, apprehending the omnipresent God. Apprehending the omnipresent God. There is nothing that escapes the all-knowing, omniscient God. And similarly, there is nothing that restricts the presence of the ever-present Omnipresent God. David, again, in the form of rhetorical questions, summarizes the ever-present nature of God. Notice in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? God's presence is everywhere. Nothing constrains His presence. And then again, David becomes more specific. Begins to show us how pervasive this presence really is. He says in verse 8, again employing those, those opposites to show completeness. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What David is doing here is he is trying to consider the greatest vertical distances that he can. Heaven being the highest and Sheol being the lowest. And Sheol in this context speaks of the grave. And so if God is in heaven, and if God is in Sheol, then by implication, He is everywhere in between. But David doesn't stop there. Verse 9, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He moves from the vertical distances and now he considers the horizontal. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, that's an expression speaking of the sunrise. And we know that the sunrise is in the east. And the sea is probably more than likely a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, which is in the west. And so David considers, if God is in the far east, and if He is in the far west, then by implication He's everywhere in between. God's presence is everywhere. And now David moves from considering the location of God's presence and he considers circumstances. 
Notice verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Perhaps what David is considering here is dark circumstances. Notice he says, surely the darkness shall crush me. That's what the word literally is. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. Dark situations will come. Perhaps even they will bring pain. Things will seem dim. But David confesses, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And so we've begun to grasp the ever-present nature of God. How do we live in response? Apprehending the omnipresent God means that we should live holy lives. It should encourage us to live holy lives. In his book, Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, Resolve never to forget the eye of God. How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? Apprehending the omnipresent God should encourage us to live holy lives. It should also encourage us to walk in confidence that whatever darkness we may face, the pervasive presence of God will be with us wherever we go. It was quoted this morning, but consider Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Number three, apprehending the omnipotent God. Apprehending the omnipotent God. Here in verses 13 through 18, we see God's omnipotence. We see His sovereign power, namely through His creative work, through creating Human life. New life. I think this can be proven by the rest of Scripture. Consider Hebrews 11, verse 11. It says that, For Sarah received power to conceive. This power was given to her by the All-Powerful One. And similarly, Isaiah 66 reminds us that it is God who possesses the power to open and close the womb. And so David begins to explain the sovereignly creative power. And again, in summative form, David describes God's creative work in forming the life of a human being. Notice verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. 
or more literally, for you formed my kidneys. Somewhat bizarre, but the word kidneys, at least in ancient Near East culture, was understood to be the seat of affections. It was figurative language to speak of the soul. God Himself forms the soul. But not only that, He knits together the body. Notice, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. David moves from soul now to body. In the same way that a person would weave together a beautiful tapestry, God weaves together our bodies to form a beautiful human being. And again, David can't help himself but break into praise. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, the creation of a human being causes both reverence and wonder. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. This work of creation is indescribable. It fills us with wonder. My frame was not hidden from you. The skeletal structure and all that it contains was not hidden from the eye of the Lord. Why? Well, we've already established that God is all-knowing and ever-present, but the point here that David's trying to make is that God is omnipotent. So the reason why our frame is not hidden from the eye of the Lord is because the Lord governs the birthing process. He governs the birthing process. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now this is not saying that babies are formed underground. That's not the point here. Rather, in David's time, the notion of the birthing process was about as foreign to the human eye as the things that transpired underneath the earth. But to God, these things are no secret. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Unformed substance. It's one word in the Hebrew. It means fetus. Or embryo. Your eyes saw, or more appropriately, your eyes superintended the developmental process of my fetus. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now again, David is using figurative language. God does not write down information in a book. He's all-knowing. What David is trying to do here is he's making a point about God's sovereign power. God not only superintends the birthing process, but He also forms or predetermines our days and our activities when as yet there was none of them. Or in other words, before we were even born. And then David again. Responds in praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I 
would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. It is almost as if David falls asleep, counting the gracious purposes of God in the same way that one would count sheep to fall asleep. And upon awaking, he finds that two things are true. One, that God is still with him. And two, the loving purposes that he rehearsed the night before were no dream, but the true loving intentions of an all-powerful God. God's omnipotence is certainly seen. His sovereign power is seen in the birthing process, in creating human life. But arguably, His greatest power is seen in the Gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it, the Gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Listen, if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented of sin and put your trust in Him alone, you are a dead man. Spiritually speaking, you are a paradox, a walking corpse. That's what Ephesians 2 says, without Christ you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What you need is the power of the gospel. Christ lived a perfect life to credit you His righteousness. Christ died a gruesome death to cancel your sin debt. Submission to His Lordship means that we now have pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. For then God's greatest power in the Gospel is seen as He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. And again, how do we respond to such an all-powerful God? How do we live in light of His omnipotence? Quite simply, upon apprehending, upon grasping the omnipotent God, we with the psalmist praise God and confess, how precious to me are Your loving and gracious purposes, O God. David has apprehended the perfections of God, and now David pivots. His tone changes as he confesses his total allegiance to the Sovereign Lord. And that brings us to our final point this evening. Total allegiance to the Sovereign Lord. Notice first verses 19-22. through Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is a most sobering and challenging text. Emotionally, it's quite striking. And that in and of itself is somewhat telling. 
We see a text like this and we somewhat cringe in our hearts. Perhaps we just skip it over. We'll just meditate on the perfections of God and then we close our Bibles. But the reality is, as C.S. Lewis reflects in his reflection on the Psalms, he notes that the psalmists took right and wrong more seriously than we do. To better understand this portion of the psalm, let us first consider the nature of the text. This section of the psalm is what is referred to as imprecatory, referring to judgment. David is apparently experiencing some sort of hostility from wicked men, and David petitions God to be God, to exact his judgment and vengeance on the wicked and to fulfill his promises. And David can confidently pray these words to God because in essence he's praying the promises of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and David Varghese mentioned it this morning, God makes a covenant with David. Promises David that he would have rest from all of his enemies and that David's throne would be established. Thus, David is really appealing most truly to God's promises. And notice, these enemies are God's enemies first. This isn't David expressing his own personal vendetta. These are the enemies of God, and because they are the enemies of God, they are also the enemies of David. And notice also the nature of the enemies. These individuals are wicked Verse 19, they are sinners who rebel against a holy God. They are men of blood. That is, they have no regard for human life. They plot against God. They curse God. All of these things must be considered. And yet, I hear the tension. Doesn't Christ command us to love and pray for our enemies? So what is it? Am I supposed to hate my enemy or am I supposed to love them? I think it's less of an either or and more of a both and. And I think this can be proven. What does it mean for David to really hate God's enemies? In order to understand this, we really have to take a step back and synthesize David's point in verses 19 through 22. David's hatred is not so much a matter of David expressing feelings of ill will towards God's enemies. No, David's hatred is a matter of personal orientation to the Sovereign Lord. He's showing us what total allegiance to God looks like. Quite simply, there are two sides. The side of the serpent and the side of the sovereign. And David makes his point very clear. He sides with the Sovereign One. Thus, those who stand on the side of the serpent are not just God's enemies, but they are David's as well. A common solution to harmonizing a text like this is a fairly common phrase. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Unfortunately, that's an oversimplification. The sin and the sinner are inextricably linked. That phrase separates the two as if they were. 
So is it really loving to hate the sin and love the sinner when the sin of the unregenerate soul is the very thing that's damning them to hell? I don't think that's loving. That's superficial kindness without serious regard to what the sin does to the sinner. We have to leave room for the hatred of the enemies of God whilst also tempering it with love and compassion for their souls. It's a both and. Not an either or. I hate Planned Parenthood. I hate the doctors who kill innocent children. Why? Because I side with the sovereign and not the serpent. It's not because I have a personal vendetta against them, but because they are the enemies of God. Why are they the enemies of God? Because they are men of blood. They have no regard for human life. Yet, because I know where their sin will send them, love and compassion compels me to pray for their salvation. Notice these words from David do not come from a position of self-righteousness. He concludes this psalm by humbly petitioning God to search Him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David asks God to search him, to test the genuineness of his loyalty, to purge him of sin and to lead him on righteous paths. And so what is our response? What does total allegiance to the Sovereign One look like? Total allegiance means we side with God alone. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. James 4 tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so, having expressed our loyalty to our God, we petition Him to search us, to test the authenticity of our allegiance to Him, to purge us of sin and to lead us down the old paths that lead to life. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, we are in awe of Your character. It is wonderful. It fills us with wonder. And we even sympathize with the psalmist in that we do not even fully grasp it. This is only the tip of the iceberg, as it were. And Lord, we are even still marveling at Your wonderful character. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would respond rightly. We pray that we would respond with total allegiance to You. Would we live under Your sovereign rule? Would we stand for what is true? We pray this according to Your character and Your reputation, O oh Lord. Amen.